We're back in the book of Acts. If you look with me at Acts 13, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 5. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I just ask again that you would shepherd us through your word. It is a light to our feet, a lamp to our paths. Lord, it's through your word that we are fed. It's through your word that we are guided and we have our minds renewed so that we might discern the will of God. And I pray that you would truly speak to each one of us, not only helping us understand what this text means, but also understanding how it is that we should live in light of it. Lord, help us to see where we need to repent, what we need to believe, how we need to think differently, and Lord, even how our our affections should change. I pray that you would work in us so that we really, all of us in attendance here, Lord, would be conformed to the image of Christ. We ask that you'd work in power through your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So after uh, studying the biblical family the last two months, uh, we return this morning to the book of Acts. And uh, it's a book, of course, that records God's plan for his redemptive purpose. Uh, that, those redemptive purposes that began back in the Old Testament uh, that, are, that were fulfilled in Christ and now are advancing through the proclamation of the gospel amongst the nations. And the events in Acts take a decisive turn in chapter 13. The focus there turns from the spread of the gospel uh, in missionary efforts from where it was in the first 12 chapters. It was focused in the church in Jerusalem and uh, the the growth that it had there. it, it It also spoke of how the gospel advanced, of course, into Samaria as well, but it was largely surrounding the church of Jerusalem and the, the work there. But then from chapters 13 on, the focus is now going to be on the Gentile churches. And really, this is the main point of the verses that we'll look at this morning that, that describe to us the dawn of Christian missions. This is where the Christian missionary effort finds its birth. A real simple outline to today's message Uh, First, the the passage describes the church's leaders in Antioch, how the Spirit led them, and then in verses 4 through 5, the strategy that the missionaries took as they sought to advance the gospel amongst the nations. Let's look first of all at the the church's leaders in verse 1. 
Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. And he lists them, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And these first verses of chapter 13, although they're fairly brief, they provide us with notable information about the beginnings of the church's first missionary movement. First, it notes this powerhouse of leaders within the church of Antioch. It begins by mentioning Barnabas. And Barnabas, as we know, has already had a massive impact upon the early church. It was through his example of sacrificial giving that inspired all the other members of the church to be giving above and beyond their means as well, so that everybody in the church had their needs provided for. It was also Barnabas who boldly embraced Saul. Though he was formerly a persecutor of that very church, he welcomed him and he introduced him to the apostles so that he too, Saul, could have an impact upon the church in Jerusalem. Until, of course, through persecution, he was then sent away to Tarsus. And, of course, it was also Barnabas who found him in Tarsus after Barnabas himself had gone to Antioch to serve there. And he saw the grace of God and he was glad and he wanted to see the church continue to grow in its doctrine and its uh, a solid foundation. And so he personally went to Tarsus and invited Saul to come serve with him at the church of Antioch. And that's, of course, where they're serving uh, in Acts 13. It could be argued, actually, that Barnabas was the most influential leader of the early church at this time. Even more influential than, than Peter and James and John. Because of how he personally has impacted the church of God through his example and his, his evangelism. I think that's really remarkable considering that he was not one of the twelve who were directly appointed by Christ for this work of missions. He was just a very earnest and faithful follower of Christ. The text also mentions Simeon, who was called Niger. There's a really good chance that this, this Simeon mentioned here is also the same person uh, we're introduced to in Luke uh, as Simon of Cyrene, who carried the Savior's cross. Uh, Cyrene, of course, was a city in North Africa, part of modern-day Libya. And the fact that he was called Niger, uh, which means black, also suggests that he was African as well, having a high degree of melanin in his skin. And then Lucius of Cyrene is mentioned next. He was possibly a relative or friend of Simon's from Cyrene. Uh, even more likely, though, is that these men were the original church planters of this church in Antioch. And I say that because of what it says in Acts 11, verse 20. It says, There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So quite likely, given these men are listed as leaders in the church, these were probably the planters of this church. This, this massive, influential church in Antioch. Antioch becomes more influential than the church in Jerusalem over time. And Antioch was actually one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. Uh, the only other two larger were Rome itself and Alexandria in Egypt. So these men had a massive impact. And it was these relatively unknown men's passion for the gospel that led to the establishing of this church. And again, these are, these are people we know very little about. And I think that's remarkable as well because we tend to think that the most influential people in the church today are the celebrities. 
the, the, the popular people, the, the mover and shakers, the, the, those who are most influential are those who have been given their authority by others who are spiritually well-known. But these men were just faithful men. They saw the need for people to be reached with the gospel and they went and they preached. These men weren't well-known celebrities. With maybe the exception of Menaean, who's mentioned last. Because it says that he was raised with Herod Antipas. This means he was a kind of foster brother of Herod. Now, that's really remarkable because Herod actually was a very close friend of the Roman emperor Gaius. So, quite likely... Menaean knew the most influential people in the world at this time. And he left all that behind so that he could serve Christ in Antioch. And last of all, it mentions Saul, Saul, who of course becomes the preeminent apostle Paul and arguably the greatest Christian of all time. And so this, this church of Antioch is loaded with spiritual leadership, godly men. I mean, this really would be like having John MacArthur, Alistair Begg, Peter De La Rosa, all at the same church together. And they're, gonna, and they're, they're going to work together to see the gospel reached. I mean, this, this church is locked and loaded with spiritual power. And it's worth noting that, that it doesn't appear that any of these men were natives of Antioch either. That they weren't born here. They came here because they saw the need. Right? The Simon and Lucius, same thing with uh, Barnabas came there. Saul, of course, wasn't originally from there either. Menaean, most likely, because he was, grew up with Herod, was from Jerusalem. So... All were men who themselves were willing to, to set aside their present living situations in order to go wherever Christ needed them most. And so it should come as no surprise that God sends out missionaries from a church where the leadership already has this pilgrim mindset. Where the leaders themselves would be willing to go, and some of these willing, leaders, of course, do go. Barnabas and Saul. And they bring along with them John Mark as well to help. Each had already proven they were willing to go where the Lord called. And their, their lives were entirely in His hands. And it's worth asking ourselves, do we also have that same mindset? And we know that we're called to have a pilgrim mentality. But even when it comes to how the Lord might use us, I think because, again, we, we grow up in such a comfortable situation in America, it's easy to believe and assume that we're going to best honor the Lord by just staying where we're at. And that may be the case. But it also may be a better way for us to honor the Lord by just leaving, if you would so send us, wherever the need might be. Um, that, that we wouldn't instead just seek to prosper where we are, but rather everything in our life we would hold with an open hand. So that we would be free to live as men who have been set free from sin. In fact, this is, uh, if you turn your Bible to Matthew eight eighteen. This is the mindset that, that Paul, sorry, Paul, Jesus calls his disciples to, to maintain. Matthew 18. Sorry, Matthew 8, verse 18. 
says this in verse 18 through 22. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes of holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Really, this is the, the same mindset, of course, that, was, uh, that, the, that the leaders of Antioch possessed. And these leaders recognize together that they have a difficult mission to fulfill. And they want to know, God, who is it that you would send so that we can see this message advance? Who among us? And they fast and they pray and then the Spirit leads them to set apart Barnabas and Saul, which is the next thing we, we see in verse 2. It says, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. When they fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And given that verse 1 indicates that some of these men were prophets, this would tell us how they discerned that it was Barnabas and Saul that the Lord had appointed. So that through this prophecy of the Holy Spirit, he revealed it directly to them. But since the completion of the New Testament, we no longer have a need for prophets. Because God's revealed everything we need to know through his completed scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. Everything necessary we have in the word of God. So that we would know how to live godly lives and walk in a manner that pleases Him. However, there's many difficult decisions that we still face as Christians that the Word of God does not directly speak to. And we want to know, God, what is your will for me? Should I work here? Should I move here? Churches want to know, should I send this person out or this person out as a missionary? So how do we know the will of God in such situations? Well, frankly, it's, it's actually through the Word of God. Through the ministry of the word, the spirit directs us. In fact, we know, we've been memorizing Romans 12 too, right? It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. It's through the word that our mind is transformed, and that's how we are able to discern specifically how God would have us sacrifice. How God would have us be living sacrifices, which is how we show what we worship. So God directs us to his will through his word. And the text before us seems to support this because it says, while they were ministering to the Lord, they received spiritual direction that they were seeking. In fact, note that word ministering. It's the word liturgia. It's actually where we get the word liturgy from. Right? Liturgy is, is what we do in a church service. It, it encompasses singing and praying, hearing the word preached. It includes all that stuff, the reading of Scripture. And so, in other words, they received discernment as to God's specific will for them while they were doing church, while they were about the worship service and everything that it, 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 it uh, that was involved in that. So, 
They received God's discernment as to what God wanted, not by going on some secluded pilgrimage up in the mountains. It wasn't by some solitary meditation on their own. They were just waiting and listening for a still small voice to speak to them. No, they actually heard the will, discern the will of God through participating in the normal church service. As they were ministering, it says. And all Christians, we want to discern the will of God for our life. And this text suggests that we're going to discern God's will for us through participation in worship services. And frankly, this has been even my experience. Where there have been, when I'm trying to know, God, what is it that you want me to do? How is it that you want me to change? What direction do you want me to take for my life? It's almost always been through hearing the word of God preached that clarity comes to me. It could be through being convicted in a sermon about something. And often, the sermon might be on a totally unrelated topic to what I'm wrestling with, and yet it's through his word that, that fears that were holding me back from obedience get exposed. Or commands I see that I wasn't obeying that were holding me back from his will. He'll convict me of pride or selfishness. Or, or he just strengthens my faith. As I recognize, I can go forth in obedience. I can trust him in that thing that for whatever was holding me back. So God does give us discernment through his word. And the things that are clouding our minds from discerning his will are exposed. The light shines through as we participate in the service, the worship service as he's designed. As I was thinking of the ways in which God guides us through his word this morning... I was reminding of the, reminded of the story of William Haslam. He was an unconverted preacher in the 19th century uh, who served in the Anglican Church. And one Sunday he was preaching on the text, What Think Ye of Christ? Which was taken from Matthew 22. And as he spoke, his inner, inner conscience began to convict him. Uh, and he was, it, was, it was as if it was saying to him, he says, You are no better than the Pharisees. You do not believe he has come to save you any more than they did. And he writes, he says, I don't remember all that I said, but I felt a wonderful light and joy coming into my soul. And I was beginning to see what the Pharisees did not, whether it was in my words or in my manner or my look. I know not. But all of a sudden, a local preacher who happened to be in the congregation stood up and putting up his arms, shouted out in the Cornish fashion, the parson's converted. The parson's converted. And the whole church just begins to just erupt in joy and praise. And they start singing the doxology over and over and over. Because they realize even our pastor's gotten converted by his own sermon. And it just shows the power of the word of God. He can convert pastors through his word. God convicts us and guides us through his word, particularly through its preaching. Which is why... We emphasize expository preaching so much as our church because that's particularly what God uses to cause us to grow. It's also why we set aside another worship service in the middle of the week on Wednesday night so that more of God's word, people can be fed more so they can grow more. Our greatest need is for to hear the word of God preached and to plead for God that he would grow us. We will not grow on our own strength. We need God's Work to work within us. We need to use His means and not just presumptuously assume that if I just do my own thing, God will cause me to grow. 
No, we need to, we need to, our growth is going to be brought about by obedience to what He calls us to do. Particularly through the hearing of the Word. Besides actively worshiping in the church, it, it specifically notes that these men were fasting. Now, on account of the influence of the uh, Roman Catholic Church and the, and the advent of monasticism in the Middle Ages, um, many people have misunderstood the purpose of fasting. And they, they see it as, a, as a, a practice where they can exercise discipline and through, through uh, asceticism it, it, it invokes some sort of spiritual power. But that's actually not what biblical fasting is all about at all. If you look at everything the Bible says about fasting, except for its abuses. What the Bible shows is that fasting was, was utilized by people when they were in a period of great desperation or grief. It was a way that they conveyed uh, in, in not eating the very fact that they were desperate for something else besides food. They, they didn't want to eat because they were so desperate to see God work in some manner. It was, it was an expression of desperation for God to work in power. And this seems to be the situation facing the church at Antioch. These, these leaders were fascinated because they knew that, that the gospel must advance. God, you've done a great work here in Antioch. We want to see this happen throughout the world because you've commissioned us to spread this good news throughout the world. Not just in Jerusalem and Samaria, but through the ends of the earth. So what do we need to do? So they're praying for wisdom. And then the Holy Spirit, of course, answers their desperate prayer. And I think it's remarkable that, that, that this mission begins with prayer and fasting. And it also ends with prayer and fasting. And in Acts 14.23 it says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. I mean, that same desperation that drove them to advance the gospel is also what drove them to just seal up that work. They're saying, God, it's not enough that we've just begun these churches. God, solidify them, grow them, protect them, keep them safe. Don't allow this work to, to just fade away, but strengthen these churches. They understood that ministry doesn't happen just through mechanistic practices. That they needed God to work in power. And so they pled for that, both at the beginning and also at the end of this mission. And, of course, what the Spirit tells them to do in verse 2 is to, is to send out Barnabas and Saul to preach. And the church obeys. And we should keep in mind that they, they weren't sending out loafers. They weren't sending out the, the crud and keeping the cream. They were sending out the best they had. I mean, Barnabas, who, who quite likely was the leader in this church, and Saul. And we know... <laughs> Saul, who is later named Paul, we know his influence. I mean, you can imagine what that would feel like for that church. We're, we're giving up Saul and Barnabas. Praise God they did. Because think about what the church would be like if they hadn't. Sure, maybe Antioch would have been strong, but what about the rest of the world? Right, it's not about just in, in building an individual church. It's about gospel advancement. And this church understood that. They sent out their best, just as God in His sovereignty sent away Daniel and his three friends. The best that Israel had to offer. Though they were unwilling, like God sent them to Babylon so that there would be a witness in Babylon to the sovereign God of the universe. 
And likewise, the Holy Spirit is sending out this church's best leaders. And the church let them go because they understood the importance of gospel advancement. And it makes sense because they would be planting the first churches in these regions probably. Because those churches would, were only going to be as strong as the leadership of those churches. They needed to make sure that whoever's starting those churches is solid, can, can deal with false teachers, can confront opponents, which they will have to do, that will endure when they face persecution, which they will face great persecution. They needed men that had iron in their veins. And it was because they, they were such men that, 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 that the gospel did advance in their ministry. They sent out their best. And so even as we pray for missionaries to be raised up in our own midst, we need to be willing as a church to let go of our best. We need to be willing to let go of our kids. We might have plans to make them doctors or lawyers or politicians. We may just want them to live with us for the rest of our lives because we love them. But we need to be willing to let them go. And we need to be willing to let anybody go if it's for the advancement of the gospel. Because it matters far more than our own personal plans. So we've looked at the church's leadership and then the Spirit's leading. This is now the missionary strategy that's explained in verses 4 through 5. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. The first element in their mission strategy that we see here was to go to a region where they knew there was a wide open door for the gospel. The first element of their strategy is they looked for the open door, namely Cyprus. And I get that phrase, open door, from Acts 14.27, because when they returned from their missionary trip, this is what they said. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Right? Even as they went from Cyprus, the doors kept opening. And they would go on to Pamphylia, and they'd go on uh, to, to Asia Minor and, and preach in Lystra and Derby. That, that phrase, open door, is what Paul tells the Corinthians God had opened when he was at work in Ephesus. He used the same phrase in 2 Corinthians 2.12. In fact, when he's imprisoned, he tells the Colossians to pray for... That God may open us a door for the word to preach the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. These texts indicate that God opens up doors for the gospel. And that that as his people pray and plead and look, he will open up those doors either uh, for them to go and, and preach, like was the case here with the missionaries, or just a conversation that would open up. But we need to be praying and looking for those open doors. He will open them. And there are a number of reasons why Cyprus was an open door for the gospel. In Acts 4.36, we're told that, that Barnabas was originally from Cyprus. He was a Levite from Cyprus. And he actually appears to be leading this enterprise because he's the first one mentioned. In the, in the Bible, typically the first one mentioned is often the leader. 
Uh, Barnabas would have had many local as well as familial connections there. But it wasn't only Barnabas. Many of the other disciples in the church of Antioch were from Cyprus. Because this is where many fled from when they were in Jerusalem and the persecution uh, rose up there. They fled to Cyprus. Acts 11.19 says, Those who were scattered because of the persecution that rose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And so the people in Antioch probably knew people from Jerusalem who had then come to Cyprus. And we also know that Cyprus was, a, was a, 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 an island that was filled with Jews. We, we know that partially because even when they show up at Salamis, it, it says in the plural there were synagogues. Not just one synagogue in that city, but multiple synagogues. And, and so there was a, a wide open door for them to preach within synagogues there in Cyprus. And the reason there were so many Jews there in Cyprus was because a generation earlier, the Emperor Augustus had actually gave, uh, given Herod the Great a present of half the revenue uh, from the copper mines on Cyprus. And so in order to uh, take advantage of that princely gift, Herod had many Jews uh, move there to, take a, to, to settle on the island to reap uh, the rewards of that, those copper mines. So they start in a region where they had connections. And then they implement a very simple and effective methodology. They would find a synagogue. And when they were invited to preach, they would preach there um, as long as they were able. And this was the same method that Paul uses throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Go to a synagogue, preach Christ from the Old Testament. um, And he he would preach as long as... They would tolerate him, and once they eventually kicked him out, uh, any Jews that had been saved and any Gentiles who would come to salvation would eventually, he would, with those people, plant a church um, there in that city. And that's how the churches would essentially start. Uh, Paul would often get this opportunity to, to teach because he was a well-known rabbi. He was, had one of the best education. And it was, this is the typical practice. When a rabbi would visit, um, churches would take advantage Right, just as if Alistair Begg were to visit here today, I'd be like, all right, we'll have you preach instead. We'd be excited about that opportunity. A well-known visiting preacher they would take advantage of. And so it was a wide open door for Paul to go and preach in synagogues. And he would stay there as long as he would until they'd kick him out. And this was essentially the pattern that Christ instructed his disciples to follow in Matthew 10. In verse 12 it says, As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet, and when you leave that house or town. Preach as long as you can, and until they no longer, longer want you, and then move on to the next open door that the God would open up. We should also note specifically the evangelistic methodology they implement. They preach the Word of God. And this makes sense because it's through the Word of God, the Bible says, that people are born again. It's hearing the Word preached that brings about salvation. The the Apostle Peter assumes 
that all of his listeners were saved through the preaching of the word. He says this in 1 Peter 1.23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And this is the good news that was preached to you. You were saved by hearing preaching. The Apostle James assumes the same thing. He says in verse 118, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He caused us to be born again through the word of truth. <clears throat> and even Jesus says that it's through his word that the Spirit brings about new life. John 6, 33. Sorry, sorry John 6, 63. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help of all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. It's Christ's words that bring about life. And as His word is preached, it brings about life. And that's why these apostles, when they go to the synagogues, they would preach. And it was through their preaching of the word of God that people were saved. In fact, the only command in Scripture given to do evangelism is actually given in the context of preaching. It's when Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist in 2 Timothy chapter 4. In fact, if you look at that, it's worth noting. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, this is the charge he gives, preach the word. And he expands on that. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Myths. Right? This is why you need to preach. Then he says in verse 5, as for you, not like these false teachers, but as for you, Timothy, preach the word, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That phrase, do the work of an evangelist, is dependent upon him preaching the word of God. In other words, his evangelism is going to happen through preaching. I find it astonishing, again, that there are no commands given in the New Testament for church members to do evangelism. I think it's because God assumes most most evangelism is going to happen through the preaching of the Word of God. The only command is the one given to Timothy, a preacher. But somebody might ask, well, what about the Great Commission in Matthew 28? It's a good question. In fact, let's look at it. Matthew 28, verse 19. He says, this is the command, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's the command. He explains, Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to serve all I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And remarkably, you'll notice the command that's given here is not do evangelism. The command is make disciples. And, of course, this includes baptizing them, which, it, which assumes they've heard and understood the gospel. But it also includes teaching them to observe everything Jesus commanded. In other words, preach the whole Bible. 
You've got to teach them everything. Yes, teach how to get saved. Teach the work of Christ, but don't stop there. Teach them everything. So the, the Great Commission encompasses not just a summary of gospel truth, but it, it demands that the churches are planted and, and the whole gospel is heard. The whole word of God is heard. It's, it's a command to preach the whole Bible to every people group in the world. And so preaching is the primary method of evangelism that we see in the book of Acts. But there is another method. And I'll point that out. The other method is personal conversation. Or what we could describe as bearing witness to Christ. Bearing witness to Christ is how it's described in the book of Acts. And such examples of that would include Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Hey, Philip didn't just stop the cart and said, alright, open to the word of God and just start proclaiming. No, he, he just started a conversation and through that conversation he was able to Explain what Isaiah 53 meant. There's also Ananias and Saul. Acts 9. Ananias went to Saul and explained to him what God was doing. Peter and Cornelius. Eventually Peter did proclaim and and begin preaching, but it just started with a conversation with Cornelius. The persecuted believers who fled to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch shared the gospel with Jews and Gentiles. There was just conversational evangelism. Paul's conversion with Lydia started with a gospel conversation as they were gathering for prayer on a a riverbank. Later on, it was the same thing with the the Philippian jailer. He just started a conversation with the jailer after God had opened up an opportunity for him to leave that jail. And also Paul's conversations with the rulers, Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. All of those are examples of conversations, just Paul personally bearing witness to the work that Christ had done. And so, although there's no text that commands church members to do evangelism, every Christian should want to do this. Every Christian should be looking for opportunities to share their faith with others. I think there's two texts that really suggest how we can bring about such open doors for the gospel. So that we can share the, conversa- the, 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 the good news of Christ with our friends and family. And the first text I want us to look at is 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning of verse 13 or 14. says, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. What Peter's saying is that that God's going to allow you to suffer in your life. And he's going to use that suffering to open up a door for the gospel. Because people are going to see the way that you're responding to that suffering. You're not like the rest of the world. You're not grumbling. You're not complaining. You're not having a pity party. But you're showing that you got hope. And people are going to want to know, where does that hope come from? And that's your open door. And so he says, the way you're going to open up that door is get ready to suffer. And get ready to suffer with your hope fixed in Christ. And secondly, the other text I want you to, to see is Colossians 4, 5. 
Colossians 4, 5 says this. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. So similar to 1 Peter, this, this, this text suggests that as we live wisely, as we live according to the word of God, live not following our own passions, but his instruction, we should be looking for opportunities to explain to people why we live the way we do. People are going to want to know, why aren't you like everybody else? I was just talking with one of my good friends before the service who was in Las Vegas this week. And everybody that he was with, aside from his, his own family, wanted to be off doing filthy things. And he, had, he wanted nothing to do with it. Broke his heart that he even had to be there. And then to know that people were engaging in such filth. And yet, it's, and when people see that, they want to know, why? Why wouldn't you take advantage of the freedom to, to do these evil things? Well, the answer, of course, is very easy for a believer. Right? When, we, when we walk in obedience to the Word of God, people are going to want to know, why do you live like that? You're weird. And that's exactly it. Because Christians have been set apart. They're strange. We should not look like the world. People should think we are weird if we're living according to the Word of God. So such personal conversations that arise between Christians and unbelievers, they appear to be the other method besides preaching that God uses to open up conversations for the gospel. And we should all be seeking such opportunities to bear witness for Christ. Whether it's with our co-workers, our family members, our neighbors, our friends. And it's the way we live, especially in the manner in which we respond to trials, that's going to show that what we believe is real. It really has impacted our life. We're not just tossing about a, a, a philosophy of living, but this is what drives every single thing that we do. This is more important to us than anything else, than making money, than being safe, than being popular, that, 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 that serving God and living for Him is the most important thing in our life. When we do that, it's going to open up gospel opportunities. And the, and the hope that we would share with people is a hope that this world is desperate to know about. And I think if God's going to use us to be a church that, that sends out missionaries to have a, a, an impact upon the world, it's got to start by us being a church of people who care about evangelism in our own lives. The more we care about evangelism now and are willing to take risks, willing to let go of things where we're at, the more God's going to shape this church to be a church that's also willing to take risks, to send people out so the gospel can advance. This is something we all have to be invested in. And when we are, we could easily have an impact like the church of Antioch had an impact. Don't doubt it, because we have the same Holy Spirit at work in our life. Let's think big, but let's also live in such a way that shows we seriously care about these things as a church. Let's do that together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would make us a church that, that deeply cares about evangelism amongst every people group and every 
people, wherever they're at in society, whether they're wealthy or whether they're living on the streets, or whether they're attractive or whether they're ugly, God, that we would just have hearts that break for people to want to know the freedom that can be found in Christ. And so I pray that you would continue to open our eyes even more to, to recognize the miracle that you've done in our own hearts and setting us free from our slavery to sin so that we'd be all the more eager to share as we see others who are still fast bound in sin and nature's night. That we could share the hope of the gospel, give us opportunities, open doors to share the gospel that, that the dungeon that they live in might, might blaze with glorious light as we share the hope that we have within us. Lord, make us an evangelistic church. That's what we're asking. And, and do that by making us evangelistic people, individuals, evangelistic families that care desperately about gospel advancement. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.